So we are going to wrap up our conversation today about forgiveness. We've been, we've been looking at forgiveness for the last couple of weeks, um, for, for the good reason that it's a new year and we don't want to bring things from the old years, uh, maybe last year, maybe 10 years ago, maybe, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. We want to, if, if it's, if it's possible, we want to leave those things behind and um, not take them with us into yet one more year. So we've been looking at forgiveness, and we began a couple of weeks ago by looking at the idea of forgiveness just makes sense, right? You can't change the past. And so if we give up all hope of a better past, if we just let it go, then then that that is not even a Christian thing. That's just That just makes sense. Um, but Christians are called to do something more than that. We're called to actually seek to be reconciled, that we want to go further than forgiveness. We want to go to reconciliation. We want, as much as it is possible for us, we want it to be... Um, uh, the, the situation, the, the relationship that that is uh, affected, to be as as good as it ever was. So, so we want to uh, work for reconciliation. And then last week we we asked about, well, okay, but is there a limit? Is there is there some some number of times we should forgive somebody? If somebody's a serial offender, do we have to continue to to uh, forgive them? And the answer, um, if you're not a Christian, is do what do what you do what makes sense to you. But um, if you're a Christian, Jesus is just too clear. He says, of course, we have to keep on forgiving. And uh, some people say he says 77. Other people interpret that to mean seven times 70 or 490. But uh, Jesus is not talking about a number. He's talking about the most we can possibly imagine. We should just go on forgiving. And so um, after after last week's message, I had a couple of people uh, actually give me feedback on that because I I guess that's a little bit of a delicate situation, um, and um, so so just a, one more reminder, you know, I'm not telling you what to do, you know, maybe Jesus is, but that that's above my pay grade. So so um, it's between you and Jesus. I'm not your Holy Spirit, but. But I had, I had some people ask me, what if they don't apologize at all? It's one thing if they apologize, you know, five times and you have to forgive them each one of those five times. But what if they don't apologize? Or, or what if they aren't even sorry? What if, what if forget apologizing? They're still doing it. They're cheerfully just doing it and they're sleeping well at night for all you can tell. They are happily hurting you and going on hurting you. What about then? What if, what about the situation where forgiveness is not enough? So that's what we're going to talk about today. What if they don't apologize? What if, what if they never show any signs of remorse? What if people are just bad people? So we're going to look at a story from the um, Hebrew Scriptures. We're going to look at a story about David. The good thing about David is David is larger than life. So, so David is at the far end of a spectrum. Saul is trying to kill David. So we'll hear about who they are and everything. But, but I assume, maybe wrongly, that nobody is actually trying to kill you. But if, if they are, there's a lesson for you here today. But, but assuming that, that, you know, you've got somebody who's bothering you. You know, they keep coming to you for a loan and then not paying it or something like that. They're not trying to kill you. But the idea is, when we look at the story of David, he is, he is so much bigger than us. He's, you know, he's, he's the guy who fought Goliath. David is, is bigger than us. So it makes it easier for us to kind of imagine a spectrum. Okay, my problem, his problem. And then we can kind of draw a line and say, okay, well, all right. I would just scale that back. You know, I'll take two thirds of what David did or something like that. So, so that's the idea is we, we look at David, um, not because anybody's trying to kill us, but because if somebody who's, who's being chased, uh, and, and fear of his life, um, can, can act this way, then it should be that much easier for us to do the same thing when we're not in that kind of jeopardy. So, so, um, this, uh, this uh, story from the Hebrew scriptures, it begins by telling us, um, that after Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, 
he was said that David had gone into the wilderness of Engedi. So um, who are these people and places? So David is King David. He is the second king of Israel. He's uh, famously, you know, the King David we hear about sometimes. Uh, but the problem is he is the second king, and there still is a first king who is Saul. Saul is the first king, and God has decided that Saul isn't cutting it. God has decided that he wants a new king, and so he's arranged a couple of chapters ago, back in chapter 16, he arranged for David to be anointed the new king. But he did not dispose of Saul, so Saul is still around, and it has slowly been dawning on Saul that that David is going to be the next king. It's been dawning, you know, Saul's kind of slow, it's dawned on other people, his daughter-in-law, I mean his daughter, his son, other people in the family have figured this out, but but Saul, uh, it took him a while to figure it out, and when he did figure it out, he thought, well, maybe God will rearrange his plans if David is out of the picture. So he decides to to uh, to kill David, and he tries a couple of times and misses, and and that was back in chapter twenty. And so David's been on the lamb for the last four chapters, um, and uh, so he has gone to En Gedi. So so uh, what does it say? Saul returned from fighting the Philistines. He was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So what has been going on is Saul has been chasing David, and he was so busy chasing David that the Philistines, who are this this uh, enemy across the border, they said, now's a great time to make some raids into Israel because the king is obsessed with this minor, you know, this thing going on inside this domestic matter, right? So, you know, there's an impeachment trial or something like that, right? Now's a great time for Canada to invade or something like that. That was kind of the thinking. And so so they did invade, and so then Saul had to quit chasing David, go back, fight the Philistines, and then when he got done, he's like, okay, now I'm going back to, to catch David. So... Um, so, uh, where has David gone? David has gone to the wilderness of Engedi. So, Engedi is on the the um, the western shore of the uh, of the Dead Sea, and it's it's an oasis. And um, uh, the 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 dry area you see the kind of a pink area there between. There's like the farming country, and then there's the Dead Sea, and then there's kind of a a pinkish uh, brown area. That's that's kind of a desert. It's um it's a bunch of uh, rocks and wadis. And so here's here's a picture of what it looks like. So if you picture, you know, in in today's parlance, we might say that's like Helmland Province or um, the the caves of Tora Bora. So it's a hard place to chase your enemy, as we learned uh, back a, a decade ago in Afghanistan. This is a hard place to chase your enemy, and so David has gone there to hide. And um, maybe that should be our first lesson. Um, flight is a valid option. You know, yes, it will make you look like a chicken. Uh, and David probably was worried about that too. But you know, David didn't have to prove anything. David had already slain the Goliath, the giant. So if David can say, you know what, now's a good time to retreat. Now's a good time to, to escape. Um, he did not say, I have to stand and fight. I have to get my name cleared in the court of public opinion or anything. David said, now's a good time to run away. And so, um, so I would encourage you with that. In particular, if you are closer to that end of the spectrum, if there's something going on in your life where you're, you feel like you are actually in some, some genuine danger, then, uh, you know, be as brave as David and run away. Um, run away to the police, run away, run away, whatever you have to do. Um, there's nothing wrong with running away. So, um, so flight is a valid option. Um, you don't have to stand and take whatever it is that, um, is happening. From this person, you're having trouble forgiving. So flight is a valid option. 
So what happens next? Well, Saul chooses 3,000 elite troops from all of Israel and goes to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. So again, off in the, this uh, deserty place um, uh, by En Gedi. And at the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. I talked about that with the children. Um, I won't I won't go any further down that path. Um, but as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with you as you wish. You know, this guy is is vulnerable. He, his troops are down, you know, in the in the uh the, the middle of the wadi or whatever, that, that you know, he's, he's in your hands. And certainly this must be a sign from God. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David creeps forward and cuts off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do um, this to my Lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. David was being advised by the people around him, you need to get even with that so-and-so. Who has got people like that in their life? You know, you, you're complaining about the situation, and there's somebody close to you who will say, darn right, you know, you know, if you ever are in a cave with them and they're vulnerable, you know, Creep up behind them and do them in. Uh, you know, we, we, we usually have people in our lives who are, who are encouraging us to do, to, to get even or do something like that. And so, so David listens to them for a little bit, but then he listens to his conscience. And his conscience, um, begins to, to, um, to, uh, tell him that that's not the right thing to do. And so he, he, um, says, he says to his men, I assume he backed away, right? <laughs> Snuck back to the, the interior of the cave. He didn't just stand up next to Saul and, and start shouting back at his men. So, so he goes back to his men and says, the Lord forbid that I should do this. So David tells his men, here's what I want to hear from you in the future. David basically turns his men from, from people who are egging him on to do something he doesn't really want to do into accountability partners. He's saying, you know, next time, next time I, I suggest anything like this, you know what I really want. My, my better advice to myself is to not attack the Lord's anointed one. So he, he tells his men um, what he wants them to be saying in the future. And so our second point is you can choose who you listen to. He starts by listening to his men who are echoing basically what they think he wants to hear. And then he listens to his conscience and then he passes the conscience on to his men and says, this is what I'd like to hear in the future. This is, this is the message I would like to hear in the future because he can choose who he's going to listen to. And so he's going to listen to his conscience and he's going to have people who will echo that back at him the next time he's debating it. So, after Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out watching his step and shouted after him, My Lord the King. And when, da- when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. And he shouted to Saul, why do you listen to the people who say, I am trying to harm you? And there's a little bit of a, you know, I'm a better man than you are, right? I listen to my conscience. You're still listening to your men. There, there may be some of that in here. But he says, why are you doing it? This very day you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. He holds up 
It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill you. So there's a great lesson here, which is let your actions speak for you. Because you may not have the chance to stand up and say, hey, look, my father, the king, you know, you know, you know, here, I'm going to demonstrate for you all of my, my good intention for you. You may never be able to, you know, particularly if you've, if you've, if you've flown, if you've fled, um, if you fled, you may not have the opportunity to confront the person and say, look, here's, here's the reality. You've got me all wrong. You know, you need to change the way you're thinking. So instead, you can let your actions speak for yourself. Because, you know, Saul's going to go away from here. And David's going to go in a different direction. We'll talk about that in a minute. And Saul's going to have with him not a story that David told him, but the action. He's going to have that robe. And when he's back in the palace or whatever, and he looks at that robe, he's going to have to think that through. Why would David not cut my throat and instead simply cut off a piece of my robe? He's going to have to deal with that. He's going to have to be thinking that through. And so we can do the same thing. We can let our actions speak for us. So David continues, because he is in the enviable position of being able to talk to the king. He says, may the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what I'm trying, for what you're trying to do to me, but I will never hurt you. As that old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds. So, so this is some proverb. It's not the, one of the proverbs in the Bible, but, but uh, David quotes it here. He says, evil people do evil things. And if people don't do evil things, that's a pretty good sign they're not evil people. So he says, you can be sure I will never harm you. I'm not an evil person. And then he says this, who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is as worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate and he will rescue you, me from your power. So we should let our actions speak for us. That, that we, we should do that because we don't have the opportunity to speak. But if you do get the opportunity to speak, there's two things that we can learn from David that are very hard to do. And so maybe it would be better if we just let our actions speak. The first one is we have to be humble. The hardest thing in the world, if you, if you do get the opportunity to confront somebody who is trying to hurt you, somebody who has hurt you already and is trying to hurt you some more, what is the hardest thing in the world? It is to say, I'm nobody. The easiest thing in the world is to say, you better not hurt me or I will hurt you back. You know, you, you look at a, you look at a dog or a cat, you know, what do they do when they're, when they're cornered, when they're in a, in, in trouble, right? They, they arch their back, they puff their hair out, they try to look as big and as threatening as they can. It's just, it's just our nature. We want to do the same thing. We want to look as dangerous as we can. And David instead says, you know, and David's got some, some credibility here. I mean, he killed, he killed the giant Goliath already, right? David could do that. But instead of saying, I am, I am your worst nightmare. You know, I will, I will bring, uh, bring a world of hurt on you if you keep bothering me. Instead of doing that, he says, I am a dead dog. I am a single flea. He says, I am not a threat to you. That is incredibly hard to do. And if you find that as hard to do as I do, then maybe you should just bet, let your actions speak for you. So, so, um, um, it's hard to do. It's hard to be humble. Um, and I don't mean because we shouldn't. <laughs> or because we don't have a lot to be humble about, but because it's just hard. So David says, I'm not a threat, 
And he says, besides, you have better things to do. He says, you're the king of Israel. The Philistines are invading all the time. He says, he says, what, what is your better self recommend you spend your time doing? So David, David acts and speaks humbly to King Saul. And if that's as hard for you as it is to me, um, then uh, what we can do is we can look at uh, the examples we have. Um, uh, I, I get a swo- swollen head as long as I don't compare myself to Jesus. So in arguments, if I compare myself to Jesus, what did Jesus tell me to do? How, how would Jesus handle this? Then it's a lot easier for me to be humble. So Jesus says in uh, later on in the same uh, biography, um, in Matthew 23, he says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He says, God's watching this. In the Sermon on the Mount, back in chapter 5, he said, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Or if you're of a, of a certain age like me, you remember the older language, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So Jesus has said, there's nothing wrong with being meek. It's not easy, but it's a good idea. And um, in, in uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, we see James and Peter both quote this verse from the Proverbs, uh, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, so compare yourself to Jesus. Do whatever it takes so you can say, you know what? I am a dead dog. I am a single flea. I am not the threat. I am not going to puff myself up and look as big and as nasty as I can. Instead, I'm going to deflate myself. I'm going to humble myself because God exalts the humble. And it's tempting. When I feel like you're a threat to me, when I feel like you have been unfair to me, when you've been pursuing me without cause, the, the tempting thing is to puff myself up, but I'm not going to do that. So in arguments, compare yourself to Jesus. And when David had finished speaking, Saul called back, Is that really you, my son David? And then he began to cry. And he said to David, You are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today, for when the Lord put me in a place where you could do, where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? Now notice Saul has not learned what David told him. Saul kind of heard half of what, what was going on. You know, the, the problem with actions speaking for you is that they, they don't necessarily say what you wish they did. So he still thinks he's his enemy. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? He missed the point, which is, I'm not your enemy. But Saul got at least the idea, who else would do that? So he says, may the Lord reward you well for the kindness you've shown me today. And now I realize you're surely going to be the king and the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. And then he says this, now swear to me by the Lord, when that happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. So he says, I want you to promise that you're not going to do like every other, you know, ancient king would have done, which is to liquidate everybody in the family line. You know, that's how you avoid the Prince Andrew problem. Right? You just kill them all, right? You know, and, and so, so, uh, that was, that was just standard operating behavior in, in, you know, whatever, a thousand BC. And he says, don't do that. And David says, so, so David promised this to Saul with an oath. So, so, um, the lesson there is you don't have to reject harmless concessions. This is another place where actions are better because if you give me the chance, I, you know, I will, I will, I will puff myself up. I will try to be threatening back to you. But the other thing is, I will say, I, I will get into this perverse thing. Maybe you can relate to this. Somebody says, "Do something reasonable, right?" You know, get up out of bed in the morning, and you say, "Not if you want it." <laughs> you know, if you ever you found yourself doing that, you know, I would normally, but because you asked for it, no, right? 
Because you asked for it, even though it's perfectly reasonable and I was going to do it anyway, since you want it, no. Never, 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 right? And David is wise enough to say, that's fine with me. I was never planning to kill your your children and your grandchildren. So, so he says, I'm perfectly content making an oath to God that I will not do that. So you don't have to reject harmless concessions, however tempted you are to reject them. So don't reject the harmless concessions. David is perfectly willing to do that. And then, uh, as we saw, um, uh, Saul went home, but David and his men went back to their stronghold. David and his men did not go back with Saul to Saul's stronghold. Why is that? Because Saul hasn't really figured things out yet. And in fact, if you read on in chapter 26, David is going to be equally forgiving to somebody who has offended him. And then in chapter 26, he's going to do the same thing with Saul again. He's going to spare Saul's life when Saul is delivered into his hands yet again. Because Saul really doesn't get it. But it's okay. Remember, we already saw this. It's okay to flee. If you're facing a situation where you're thinking, well, you know, uh, I'm in, I'm in some real danger here. You know, I think in particular in church situations, the place where pastors um, have gotten this wrong sometimes is in, in situations around domestic violence. And I will tell you, if you're, if you have any fear of any kind of a, a somebody actually hurting you, uh, the, the Christian thing to do is not to stay there and take it. The, the, th- Christian thing to do is to flee and to get help. So there's nothing at all wrong with getting help. Um, and the reason for that is that, um, is, is, has to do with this. Where is God? Where, where is God in our, in our story? We haven't seen God, right? God, God acts throughout all, all the Hebrew scriptures. We see God all over the place, but we don't see God here. The only way we see God is through the eyes of the people who are in the story. Everybody agrees on two things. First of all, they all agree that God has arranged these circumstances. David's men, they, they say to him, the Lord is telling you, I will put your enemy into your power. David says to Saul, the Lord put you in um, my mercy. And Saul himself says, that's true. Uh, um, you have been amazingly kind to me when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me. Everybody agrees God has arranged the circumstances. The other thing they agree on is that God is going to judge. So David says, may the Lord therefore judge which one of us is right and punish the guilty one. And uh, Saul says, may the Lord reward you. He, he doesn't... He doesn't think he's doing wrong, so he's, or maybe he does, because he doesn't say, may the Lord judge. He simply says, may the Lord reward you. But what scripture says is that God will judge. Not just the other person, God will judge you. God will look at the situation, and God will see it with perfect clarity. God will see the part that's your problem and the parts that's their problem. God will see all the extenuating circumstances. If there's any exculpatory evidence, God will not overlook it. God will judge the situation with perfect clarity and perfect fairness. And because of that, we are called to love our enemies. Because the danger is if we are, if we are, if I know that God is going to come down on you like a hammer, then the thing I might want to do is to say, let me see if I can push them a little further. Let me go all passive-aggressive. Because that way, instead of a hammer, God will come down on you like a ton of bricks. Right? There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a notion we might get in our head that we can, we can somehow entice the person into doing even more wrong. And 
That's not loving. And that's why as, as Christians, we're called simply to love our neighbor, to say, God has got this sorted out. You don't have to, you don't have to put your thumb in the scale to, to bring it more into balance in your favor. God, God sees everything with clarity and you don't have to help him. Just let him do his job. You don't seek vengeance. Vengeance is his. We read that in, um, in, uh, Romans. Paul says, you, so long as, so, so insofar as it's in your power, you do what is right. You treat your enemy, um, with, uh, you, you work toward peace with your enemy and God will take care of any vengeance that has to happen. So God will judge both of you. And I think we like half of that. If, if in fact there is somebody who has been, who has been harmful to us, if somebody has really been unmerciful, if somebody has made it difficult for us to forgive them, keeps presenting us new opportunities and never apologizes, it seems, shows every sign of being content with harming us. It's very easy to say, okay, God will judge you. That's great. But if we're honest, there's probably people that we have been that too, where we've been the one that is difficult to forgive. We've been the one who has not asked for an apology. And so there's a little bit of good news for us that David could only have guessed at. David says this, May the Lord therefore judge which one of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate. David David has a glimpse of what we now know through the light of the crucifixion, that God is both judge and redeemer. God came not only to be a fair judge, but to take the penalty of the guilt that we have on us. Jesus came so that we could be delivered from the guilt that we have. And so, yes, if, if you are, if you are doing something that other people are having difficulty forgiving, stop. You know, don't, don't be that person. But if your conscience bothers you, if like David, your conscience is bothering you because you've done something wrong, remember, you have not just a judge in Jesus, you have an advocate. And he will rescue us from the justice that would be ours otherwise. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks um, that we do have a, an advocate in Jesus, that we can face judgment without fear because our judge is also our redeemer. Lord, nobody is trying to kill me, and I'm sure that uh, for most of the people in this room, hopefully all of them, nobody is trying to kill them. That we have inconvenience, we we have we have insults, but we're not in danger, Lord. But if there is anyone who hears this message and is in danger, Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage to flee and to seek whatever help they can in um, in protecting themselves from the dangers that face them. But but Lord, for for everyone else, everyone else who is simply dealing with unfairness, the, the unfairness of other people, Lord. Help us to listen to our conscience, knowing that you will guide us um, uh, in, in acts of mercy. And Lord, let our actions speak for us so that we can be um, we can be understood or at least we can at least mess with the heads of the people who are hurting us. And Lord, um, help us to be humble and to uh to um, do what is right even when it's proposed by the other person, knowing that you will judge us. We pray all these things to Christ our Lord. Amen.